Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On this episode, we'll talk with Peniel E. Joseph, author of The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, Jr., published in March 2020 by Basic Books. In July 2020, I started this interview by calling Peniel a brave soul. So much has already been written about Muslim minister Malcolm X and Baptist minister Martin Luther King, Jr., that I asked Peniel why he chose to tackle these iconic leaders' lives. Yes, that's a great question. I think that I thought I had a new way in from having done a lot of archival research and read uh, the voluminous secondary literature on both of these activists. Um, I had read To Kill a Black Man by Louis Lomax, which was really about King and Malcolm and really sort of the first dual effort. And then, of course, the classic book Dream Versus Nightmare by James Cone about Malcolm and Martin. But I thought that if we rethink and reframe the relationship to one another, it helps us think about their time and our own in different ways. For instance? Well, a lot of different examples. Um, I think both of them serve as the alter ego of the other. I think it shows us a king who's more radical and more revolutionary than we might have imagined. And I think it shows you a Malcolm X who's more pragmatic and interested in issues such as voting rights and ending police brutality and interested in diplomacy and being a political statesman on the world stage than we might have imagined. So in doing so, you really get a a better example by looking at Malcolm's vision of radical Black dignity and Dr. King's vision of radical Black citizenship, that they come to the realization that you need both. And I think that convergence is shown in both Black power activism, but also King's later activism as well, and this ability to discuss radical Black dignity and radical Black citizenship simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Your book is a little bit more than 300 pages long, and you could have easily (laughs) have spent several volumes examining these issues. So how did you decide to approach looking at both of these men and do it in such a relatively concise way? Well, I think there's been so much great biographies of both of them, really more on Dr. King than than uh, Malcolm X, the big biography of Malcolm we have by the late Manning Marable, one of my mentors. And there's another book coming out by the late Les Payne, posthumously with the assistance of his daughter, who's a longtime editor at Newsweek. And um, with Dr. King, you've got Taylor Branch has a trilogy of over 2,000 pages on Dr. King, The America and the King Years. Uh, David Garrow won a Pulitzer Prize for Bearing the Cross. Adam Fairclaw has a book about the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in King. David Levering Lewis has a fabulous first biography, critical biography of, of MLK called King that was published in 1970. So I thought that I wanted to spend a considerable amount of time on their public political lives and activism. For Malcolm, it's 52 to 65. For King, it's 55 to 68. I start the book on March 26, 1964, when they're at the U.S. Senate, you know, that famous picture, the only picture that we have of them together, why were they both at the U.S. Senate? What were they doing? And it turns out they're both lobbying in support of the Civil Rights Act, that the Senate is filibustering. 
So I thought that right there gives us real clues into a lot more convergence. And then it becomes sort of trying to unwrap those uh, strands and then put them together in a different and exciting way. But I also thought I spend time examining, for instance, how racial trauma impacts Malcolm Little into his evolution into Malcolm X and El Haj Malik El Shabazz as his father is murdered by white supremacists when he's six. His mother is placed in a psychiatric institution when he's very young. He's a foster child. So I wanted us to keep all those things in mind. And in turn, King has a much more gilded childhood, but he's also impacted, you know, there's a white woman who slaps him in the face as a young boy for saying he stepped on her shoes. He's shocked by that. He loses his little white best friend at six, seven years old because of segregation. He wins an oratory contest and has to spend over three and a half hours standing on the bus because of racial segregation. And he says he's 14 years old. It's the angriest he had ever been in his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he's 17 years old, 18, there's black men in Georgia who are murdered for trying to vote that King reads about and writes about and speaks out against. So King has his own interface with anti-black racism, but it's really not going to be at the same level. And of course, Malcolm's incarcerated for 76 months, uh, committing acts of theft uh, with a, a handgun and eventually serves time in three different prisons. So their biographies are very, very important. And I then wanted to spend considerable time on what they were actually doing in the 1950s and 60s and how that work parallels and intersects with each other. And I think you do that really, really well. Um, Did you try to talk to any of the surviving family members of either Martin Luther King's or Malcolm X? Within the analysis, I talk about the hardships that activism and FBI surveillance how that impacts both of these individuals, but also their families, you know, their marriages, their relationships. Uh, A lot of times when you look at Dr. King and Malcolm X, literally in a given year, they're spending more time on the road than they are at home. Mm -hmm. I think for all of us who have families, we have to understand that's going to have an impact on your relationship with your children, with your spouse, the whole deal. But I was much more interested in their political impact, their social impact, their policy impact, their cultural impact. Okay. What's interesting, too, is that these men were about four years apart. Malcolm was born in, what, 1925? 1925, May 19th, 1925, and Dr. King, January 15th, 1929. So really, they were children of the Depression. Yeah. When we think about the Depression, especially for Malcolm X, because Malcolm X is in Omaha, Nebraska, in 1925 when he's born, but then he's in Lansing, Michigan until 1940. And so he's absolutely a child of the Great Depression, and he's a child of the racial segregation uh, of the Midwest, and that really haunts him. And then obviously he's incarcerated for 76 months too. So Malcolm has witnessed the belly of the beast in terms of American democracy and racism in ways that King really reads about and interfaces with through the church but less so in person until he starts to become a political activist and mobilizer in the the late 1950s and is able to see it firsthand. So um, yes, that definitely shapes them. And they're also, they come uh, into political maturity during the Cold War, and that's going to shape them as well. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you start the book with that March 1964 I don't want to say meeting. It's kind of they were in the same place at the same time, right? Yes. Um, why do you think that they never really met or even talked after that point? 
Well, there, there are different surrogates try to set up a meeting. Uh, Malcolm famously meets with Dr. King's attorney, uh, Clarence Jones. Mm-hmm. That March 26th uh, meeting uh, at the Senate for a few minutes, there's a point where Malcolm is being interviewed by Robert Penn Warren, the journalist, and he says his goals are similar to Dr. King's. They share the same goal of human dignity. There's another speech that Dr. King gives on December 17th of that year where Malcolm X is in the audience after King has won the Nobel Peace Prize. And a few days later, Malcolm talks about having seen Dr. King give that speech, and he talks about that speech positively. Then Dr. King, when Dr. King's in Selma, Malcolm visits Selma after giving a speech in Tuskegee, and he goes to visit Dr. King, but King is incarcerated for some voting rights demonstrations. And Malcolm gives a speech sandwiched in between Andy Young and Coretta Scott King. And he tells Coretta Scott King that he's there in Selma to help her husband, that he admires her husband, and that to tell Dr. King that he wants to work with him. So there's all these different things that are happening. But really, on some levels, King's people are going to be wary of a meeting. They understand he's under FBI surveillance. This is a point in time where King has a very close relationship with Lyndon Johnson, who's the new president after John Kennedy's assassination. And so in a way, um, King has more to lose orchestrating a meeting with Malcolm that might leak. So I think those are some of the big reasons that they don't meet. Okay. Again, because so much has been written and discussed and analyzed about both King and Malcolm X, Were there any surprises in your research, anything that I don't want to say hadn't been revealed before, but what that was surprising in the context of looking at these two men's lives? Well, yeah, I think a lot was. I think um, some stuff had not been revealed, like the the December 17th King speech that Malcolm went to at the Harlem 369th Armory. That that is not found in the historical literature. And that was December when? December 17th, 1964. And uh, that's a speech in front of 8,500 people at the 369th Armory. And it's really after a day-long celebration of King in New York City for winning the Nobel Prize that starts in the morning with white dignitaries and being given a key to the city and ends uh, with uh, a predominantly Black crowd in Harlem at the 369th Armory. Uh, I think another thing that was interesting was the fact that both King and Malcolm negotiated with big city police chiefs in Los Angeles and Harlem after incidents of police brutality in the 1960s, and both of them tried to unsuccessfully get civilian police review over the police. For Malcolm, it's starting in 62 in Los Angeles after Ronald Stokes is is murdered, a Black member of the Los Angeles mosque. And then for King, it's really after the Harlem Rebellion of 64, when Malcolm is actually in Cairo for the Organization of African Unity Conference, And then for King, again, it's after Watts, the Watts Rebellion of 65. And he's negotiating with police chiefs who Malcolm had unsuccessfully negotiated with. And I think it's really the combination of Harlem and then Watts that really sets King on a different course and path, in addition to having had that relationship publicly uh, with Malcolm, where he starts to understand the depth and breadth of the structural racism, the institutional racism, the white supremacy that Malcolm had been facing. 
You also call these men black revolutionaries who were really like exemplars of uh, racial and economic justice advocacy. For any listeners who may not understand their global influence, what made them so powerful and representative of revolutionary action, uh, not just in America, but throughout the globe? Yeah, they're both human rights activists. Um, When we think about Malcolm X, he first travels to the Middle East in 1959. uh, And Malcolm X is an anti-colonial activist. He's a revolutionary Pan-Africanist. He believes in political self-determination for indigenous groups of people, whether that's in Africa or the Middle East or the third world. So Malcolm is constantly pushing back against American imperialism, American capitalism, American racism. And he is somebody who's constantly advocating for an end to the tyranny of white supremacy uh, around the world. Um, So they're both interested in the relationship between the global north and the global south that really is coming under some redefinition in the 1950s and 60s through anti-colonial movements and civil rights movements and also political revolutions. Uh, King goes to Africa in 1957. He goes to Ghana. Um, He lives in India. He tours India for a month in 1959. So King is an anti-colonial activist too, but he's interested in a peaceful political revolution. Now, what's interesting about Malcolm and Martin is that in the 1950s and early 60s, I would say that Malcolm definitely is a political revolutionary. King has read about revolutions. I think he's very sympathetic, but he's utilizing the movement and the mobilization of the civil rights movement to try to enact political reforms that he feels will uh, be very, very effective towards achieving black citizenship. As the 60s progress, King becomes more and more radicalized after he understands that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act are not enough. And he really comes to see that the great society is not enough um, because we're spending so much more resources in Vietnam than eradicating poverty. So there are global dimensions. You know, Malcolm visits Africa and Europe in the Middle East for 25, 26 weeks in 1964. Uh, Malcolm X had an office at the United Nations because of his international contacts. He meets up with Fidel Castro in Harlem in September of 1960. He knows a ton of different African diplomats and third world diplomats and revolutionary leaders and statespersons. Mm -hmm. So Malcolm is planning to go before the United Nations and charge the United States with the violation of human rights. And that's something that black activists, uh, we charge genocide had been doing and talking about since the late forties, early fifties, something Langston Hughes reminds him of. And then King, you know, when we think about King in the global context, King wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Malcolm uh, famously says that he wouldn't accept a peace prize in a time of war, (laughs) in a time of global conflict. So both of them are waging that double V campaign that the Pittsburgh Courier had initiated in the 1940s, the Black newspaper Victory Against Fascism Abroad and Victory Over Jim Crow and Racism at Home. So they're waging that link between the Black freedom struggle in the United States and struggles for dignity and citizenship and human rights globally. And certainly Malcolm, by 1964, keeps telling civil rights activists that 
we can't call it a civil rights movement. We have to understand that this is a human rights movement. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, that both men died when they were 39. And both men died really as their um, philosophies were converging. Do you think that there would have been more convergence uh, of these two men, even if they had lived through the rest of the 60s? Yeah, I think so. I think that what you see is that King is, um, he's thinking inside out with the global. So he's doing the Poor People's Campaign, but also a peace movement, a critique of the Vietnam War, uh, wanting to really have policy transformations, including a universal basic income, decent housing, guaranteed employment, the end of segregation domestically, but very well aware that militarism, racism, materialism, what he calls the triple threats facing humanity, impact the entire planet, which he calls the world house. Whereas Malcolm, I think Malcolm would have loved to have spent more time in Africa and the Middle East and even lived there. I mean, he has the letter where he says he left his heart in Cairo. Mm. So I think Malcolm was very much interested in, you know, Harlem to Havana, New Orleans to Nigeria, Bandung to Brooklyn, but would have been very much focused on crafting global coalitions between Africa, the third world, the Middle East, and the United States, the Black freedom struggle in the United States. Uh, And in a way where, you know, Malcolm is a man of faith, just like King is a man of deep faith, in a world where he could have introduced Islam as this religion that's fighting for social justice um, on a scale that the United States had yet to witness. So he was very interested in that as well. So I do think there was going to be real convergence. So for writers who would be interested in well-known figures like Malcolm and and Martin, what advice would you offer? Well, I think this is a culmination. So I would say to people, if they're interested in doing like somebody, some woman, you know, some, I think of a Black woman like Ida B. Wells, and we need more work, but Paula Giddings has an absolutely magisterial biography. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Okay. You know what I mean? That's one of the best things you're just going to ever read, period. Right. Uh, Right. Mia Bay has an excellent biography of Ida B. Wells. Uh So I think what you need to do if you're interested in something like that, because this is how I got into the Malcolm Martin biography, the dual biography, what you would do is you'd be interested in a time period that's shaping Ida B. Wells and try to write a book about that. And I think over time, what happened to me in writing books about the Black Power Movement, writing a biography of Stokely Carmichael, writing another book where I had um, some biographical snippets of Stokely and Malcolm X uh, in Dark Days, Bright Nights, and then just editing anthologies and writing just numerous articles, and then also reading voluminously and the archives, I started to see that the way in which King was portrayed and the way in which Malcolm was portrayed, even by scholars who I respect and books that I thought were fabulous, they were not my King and my Malcolm, right? Mm-hmm. So what you're doing with, the, with iconic figures, you're making a claim that you actually have something more to say about them, but you can only make that claim after deep, deep reading, which is why I wouldn't suggest those iconic figures as first projects, because I think the reading and the work that I had to do to be able to do a project like this was decades. Mm -hmm. And then by that point, yeah, they were scaled down as just human beings to me. So part of it is uh, you may want to compartmentalize and sort of do a biography that's not just the full birth to death biography, but something that's a, a biography that is connected to a larger theme 
uh, than just having to fill in the dots about every single aspect of the person's life. And I think those a lot of times are are very, very powerful, especially when you have much written about figures. And again, for Malcolm and Martin, I think of them as public intellectuals, as mobilizers, as activists, as organizers, um, as statesmen, as political lobbyists, as men of deep religious faith, mm-hmm. as folks who had a long-going public critique of American democracy, as um, anti-imperialist, as critics of capitalism, uh, but also as historians. You know, both of them talk about racial slavery. So for me, I tried to situate them in ways that I thought people never want to look at this aspect of them, both individually, let alone converging. So I think one of the most interesting parts in terms of doing the research and new information was that I argue that Malcolm X is Black America's prosecuting attorney. He's prosecuting whites and charging them for a series of crimes against Black humanity that go back to racial slavery. That's what Malcolm's doing. Mm -hmm. By the end of his life, King is in Marks, Mississippi. He's in tears listening to Black women and men talk about their children starving, going hungry, with no shoes, no blankets, in the richest nation in the world. Here's what King says, not Malcolm, King. King says to them, and we've got the footage of this, he says, the way you are living is a crime. And we're going to go to Washington, D.C. We're going to occupy D.C. until this all ends. Now, if that's not revolutionary, I don't know what is. And I had never seen any book do that. And that's why I wrote the book, because I said, I can't believe these are all these threads that are together with these two iconic leaders, but you never see it. You're never able to tangibly turn from one page where you're seeing King to the next and you see Malcolm and you can really see the influence that they have on each other. So Malcolm had criticized the March on Washington as a farce on Washington because he said they should have paralyzed the city with civil disobedience. By 65 in the Beyond Los Angeles Riots essay, King says, what we're going to do next is paralyze major cities with civil disobedience. <laughs> right. So when you see these connections, what I thought was extraordinary is that nobody is spotting these connections in that way. And so when we think about Malcolm's notion of radical Black dignity, King is saying in 67 that the halls of the U.S. Congress are running wild with racism. King is telling the American Psychological Association in September of 1967, the greatest threat to American democracy is white supremacy and white folks are producing chaos and telling black people that if not for the chaos that the white folks produce, there'd be racial justice and peace. This is King. (laughs) And so when you see that, you're saying, well, this is a man on fire and we don't want to teach him to our school children. And I think we should. So when King is saying the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, and Malcolm is saying that the United States is a a sick society, a society where Black people have been catching hell for 400 years, they're converging. And my argument is that they're both revolutionaries, right? And then in the New York City I grew up in, the word bad meant good. So when you went, those are two bad guys or two bad sisters, that was good. So these were some bad, bad activists, icons, revolutionaries, and I wanted people to have one book, if they just could just read one book about both of them, um, to read The Sword and the Shield and get that story, I think, in the framing that it deserves. That was Peniel E. Joseph talking about his dual biography, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., published in March 2020 by Basic Books. 
This online Zoom conversation was recorded on July 31st, 2020. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day.